I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be covering verses 7 to 12 today. But we're going to start reading in verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. As we've been working through Galatians and uh, into this chapter, we've been seeing how it is that Christ has secured freedom for all who believe in him. And that this freedom is itself then something that is freely given to all who believe. Uh, It is not a freedom that we have to purchase or work our way up toward or whatever it is. Rather, it is freely given. Uh, Paul has laid out that justification and our union with Christ, and our adoption as sons, and the inheritance that comes with that, all of these are freely given gifts that we receive by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by working for them. These are not loans either that we get up front but then have to try to earn back or pay off or something like that. So we are free in Christ Jesus, forgiven, his people, no longer slaves to sin. And the scripture calls on us then to stand firm in that freedom. We just read it and we covered that last time. We're told and exhorted to not submit again to another yoke of slavery. That is to legalistic teaching that corrupts this grace of God. Teaching that would just put you back under a yoke of striving in order to try to earn and establish your righteousness before God by which you would stand. That's akin to being justified by the law, Paul said, as we just read. Paul clarified there, as we saw last time, that there are two mutually exclusive pathways to try to obtain righteousness. One is through law-keeping, But as we saw and as we just read, this demands perfect obedience to the entirety of God's law. This isn't what the Judaizers themselves were saying. They were pointing to circumcision, to some of the ceremonial laws. But Paul makes very clear that if you want to try to be justified that way, you've got to keep the entirety of God's law because that's what God's law demands if you plan on taking that pathway to be justified. That path then, because we cannot obtain justification by our works of law, only ends up leaving us justified, and in, or sorry, cursed, not justified, the opposite, cursed and enslaved to our sin. And this was the way, of course, of the Judaizers. This is the way of legalists. And this path is outside of Christ Jesus, as he said, and as we just read. The other path, the saving path, is the righteousness that is graciously given by God and is received by faith. And this is where we are free and made free. This is where freedom is found. And Paul has been telling us to 
maintain this, to uh, stand firm here. And as we come into verse 7, Paul continues his exhortation to run well in accordance with this gospel and the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul's concern is not simply that his hearers began well. His concern was not that he might go into a place and check off boxes and get a bunch of people whipped up and then he's on to the next thing and he forgets those and however it goes from here is no big deal. Paul's concern is that believers would continue on in affirmation of the gospel and living in a manner that is consistent with the gospel of God's grace. In a number of places in Scripture, the Bible speaks of the Christian life as a race. It uses this language of race. Paul was fond of this metaphor, and he uses it once again here in verse 7. The Galatians, he says, had been running well, and he would have them run well once more. He would have them return to that. So we're going to look at three things that are included in running well. Or we might say that are included in living Christian lives consistent with the gospel of God's free grace. Now, there's obviously a lot that we can say about running the race that is the Christian life. And we'll see more of it even in coming weeks as we continue through chapter 5. But we're going to focus on three things that emerge from verses 7 to 12. So the first one is running well involves testing our influences. Running well involves testing our influences or testing that which is influencing us. So verse 7 begins, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Throughout this letter, Paul has been quite firm with the Galatian churches, uh, even biting, uh, harsh at times. Uh, he, he called them foolish Galatians. But we've also seen throughout this letter, Paul's not just ranting and losing his mind with them. We've also seen throughout this letter, Paul's love and concern for them. And even here in verse 7, he commends them. He's, he's, he remembers, there was a time you were running well, he says. Paul has all the, the stuff going on in Galatia notwithstanding. Paul does have a measure of confidence in the Galatian believers. And he'll express that explicitly in verse 10, which we'll get to. And so when he considers his time with them in their early days, he saw good things. He says here, you were running well. They believed the gospel that Paul preached to them, the true gospel of God's grace that he is once again laying out in this letter. And then they were seeking to live consistently with that, pursuing obedience to the Lord, not so as to try to perfect their salvation by their fleshly efforts, but they were seeking to obey the Lord as those who were graciously freed and forgiven sons, adopted sons of God. They were not viewing the Christian life in legal uh, categories and thereby abandoning grace. Rather, Paul says, they were running well. Their faith was indeed working through love. But then he asks the question, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, it's very likely, I think, many suggest that Paul probably knows it knows who these people are that are troubling them. And that this question rather is aimed at the Galatians as opposed to who on earth could this possibly be? What are their names? Rather, he's, he's asking them this so as to cause them to think about this, to think about this very carefully. Who are these men? Really? Really? What, what are they saying? And, and what are they after here? What are their qualifications? Is what they're saying really worth following after, worth being thrown off course and hindered? He would have them test what they have been saying, test who it is that they are following. Their newfound focus, as they have listened to these Judaizers, this newfound focus and their newfound efforts to obey were not, in fact, obeying the truth. They were hindering them 
This was actually out of line with the truth. Their obedience now, if they are going to listen to the Judaizers, was actually a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is, again, what he's been making clear and said very explicitly in last week's text, in verses 2 through 6. He adds here, verse 8, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So, so here's what matters, ultimately. Whether or not the truth that we are believing is actually God's truth, is actually from him. If a teaching is tested and found not to be from God, then we as his people are to reject it. And of course, we test ultimately by the scriptures, by God's word. That's how we test and examine the things that we are taught, those who would influence us. The Galatians, they had been persuaded away from from the truth. The emphasis from these teachers, Judaizers, their emphasis was upon obedience to the law. They needed to be circumcised, keep these food laws, etc. Their emphasis was obedience, but again, this was not obedience that was in accordance with the truth. This was not obedience that was in the truth, and therefore it was wrong. In their case, they were denying the gospel, they were asserting legalism, and it was leaving those who believe this and live in light of this outside of Christ. Again, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So the need for discernment, the need for testing, again, comes through very clearly. This whole letter is essentially a call for the churches to be on guard and to not listen to these false teachers. Verse 9 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can hear well-meaning Christians in Galatia saying, Well, it's just circumcision. It's just a few other laws. I don't even necessarily agree with this, but it's it's not a big deal. We don't want to cause a, a fuss. Let's just take it easy here. But when the gospel of God's grace is undermined, then there is no quarter to be given. We see that very clearly throughout Galatians in the language Paul uses when he is confronting these people. We will see more in verse 12 here today. Uh, We see it right at the beginning of of the book when he pronounces a curse upon them. Let them be accursed, anathema, eternally condemned. The leaven of legalism will spread through the churches. And so Paul's letter brings a measure of urgency in the matter. That we are definitely to be careful that we would test those that would influence us. Because of the nature of sin and error, which spreads and permeates like leaven through a batch of dough. Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the, one who is trouble, and, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Again, Paul states his confidence here. They're being persuaded away from the truth, but he states his persuasion. He has confidence that they'll yet escape this error and agree with him. Again, though Paul has warned them, though he has spoken very bluntly with them, he still has some confidence that there are genuine believers who will snap out of it and who will indeed cast out the slave woman, as he writes at the end of chapter 4. That they will indeed remove the troublers from their midst and have nothing to do with them and no longer give them any hearing. The word penalty here, as Paul says, he is confident that the one troubling you will bear the penalty This refers to the judicial verdict of condemnation over them. He's confident this will yet occur. It seems that Paul has in mind here the verdict of the churches, that that he is confident that the churches would yet pronounce judgment, that they would reject this message. It is not the gospel. It is heretical. And then remove these influences from their midst, cast them out from them. It is also possible that Paul's confidence is that such false teachers 
will not escape the judgment of God. That perhaps what he's looking at here is that they will bear the eternal punishment. Certainly this would be in keeping with Paul's own curse that he pronounced upon them, that let them be anathema. And likely he maybe has both views in mind. He's confident and hopeful yet that these churches will figure this out and remove these influences. And of course, he has confidence that these troublers, those who would corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ, will yet stand before God Almighty and receive just condemnation from him. I think it is also, once again, helpful to notice that Paul does distinguish between the ones who are doing the deceiving and those who are being deceived. Those being deceived are clearly responsible. They're being rebuked throughout Galatians. But Paul is patient with them and he is loving toward them. But when it comes to the hardened deceivers those who are causing the troubling, those who are preaching this false gospel, those who have refused correction, who are misleading and they're misinterpreting and slandering apostle, the Apostle Paul and others, distorting the gospel. To these folks, Paul has a very different attitude, a much harsher language. They are wolves. They are to be put down. They're to be put out, not listened to. And so likewise, we can distinguish between those who would teach unrepentantly and persuade people unrepentantly towards error and false doctrine and false gospels and those who might be under their sway for a time. Again, we see here the need to be discerning, to be careful with what we listen to, to be watchful over the influences that we allow upon us, to be testing these things. And also that before we would do this for others, we should be doing this for ourselves. Begin with ourselves. Is this influence helpful? Is this godly? Is this book or website or podcast or teacher, whatever it may be, leading me into truth or lies, and to test it by the word of God. And let us be patient with one another. I, it's doubtful any of us could ever say we've never been deceived, even by something small. We are those who are growing in our understanding. And so we can be patient with one another and, and even gentle and loving in our rebukes with one another if and when they are necessary. And we can distinguish that from the wolves that would come in and try to devour one another. So running well involves testing that which would influence us. Secondly, running well involves embracing the offense of the cross. The message of the cross is an offensive message to sinful man. I'm not, this is something we need to square with. Uh, I'm not at all convinced that evangelical churches, so-called, broadly speaking today, have, have come anywhere near reckoning with this reality. We will do anything but preach Christ crucified. For the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I, I even just in the last week here just all of these churches hearing about that are doing plays and skits and all of these things for fun on Easter. This is the this is the way to communicate and draw people in. It's grievous. We we have we preach Christ and him crucified. And the reality is it is going to be an offense to sinful people. Paul says this, verse 11, If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? It seems a bit odd because throughout Galatians, Paul has been saying um, circumcision is not necessary to be justified. 
And now he says, if I'm still preaching circumcision, as if there's some doubt about this. Well, it would seem that part of the argument from the Judaizers was that Paul really did preach the necessity of circumcision. But that he left it out of his message when he goes to uh, Gentiles, like in Galatia, in order to make the gospel easier for them. This is what Paul is apparently responding to here as he writes this. Uh, Perhaps these teachers, these false teachers, were pointing to the fact that Paul had Timothy circumcised, which he did. We read of that in Acts chapter 16. That comes after the Jerusalem council, when the council very clearly uh, says that uh, obedience to the ceremonial law of Moses is not necessary to be saved. That includes circumcision. Then in chapter 16, we see him circumcise Timothy. And they're taking that to mean Paul is a double-minded man. When he's around the Jews, he's preaching circumcision. It is necessary. Look, he had Timothy be circumcised. But around you, he holds back on that aspect of the message in order to make it a little easier for you because he knows that message is not going to be that popular to Gentiles. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, we saw there Paul was being accused of man-pleasing. He was being accused of seeking the approval of man. And quite likely what that was, was, was this very issue. Well, he left out circumcision to you because he wants your approval. I find it interesting that Paul is accused of soft-peddling the gospel. The reality is, faithful ministers of Christ can be accused of being too harsh, but also can be accused of being too easygoing or too soft. It could be considered too harsh because a gospel minister will be very dogmatic and very firm. There is one gospel. We'll preach of uh, sin and repentance and faith and Christ alone is the hope of salvation. And this can seem very too, too firm and harsh. But on the other hand, a gospel minister can be accused of being too soft. This is the way legalists see grace. They will see grace as too easy. You can't all be. You can't can't truly be saved by just simply grace through faith alone in Christ alone and have everything just tied to him and remove it from your works. You can't do that. That's too easy. That's too soft. That's just man-pleasing. That's what Paul's being accused of here. So you you can be accused on all sides as it is today. So they're accusing him of, well, he does actually preach circumcision, at least in some crowds. But Paul, of course, did not preach circumcision. He did not preach its necessity in order to be justified. The way Paul operated is that he would keep certain ceremonial laws when he was ministering to the Jews simply in order to not be a stumbling block to them, in order simply to gain a hearing. So if he could remove an obstacle by eating their way, then it was nothing for Paul to do so. This is what he means when he says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he was all things to all people, that he, when he was with the Jews, he became like a Jew. However, if someone was then insisting on the necessity of those laws in order to be saved, Paul wouldn't budge. He would not give to that kind of thinking and teaching for even a moment. This is what happened when he confronted Peter in Antioch. If you remember back in chapter 2, everything's going well. Peter comes up to Antioch. He's with the church, Gentiles and Jews. And then he suddenly falls back with others. Barnabas is led astray and they're now keeping the food laws and they're separating. And in this instance, it is a big deal for Paul. And so he confronts Peter very directly and publicly to rebuke him because he's in the wrong. This, is, this was different. Peter was going along with those who were preaching the necessity of these things in order to be saved. 
So when the message became one of legalism, Paul would not go along with that. He would have nothing to do with that. And Paul was most certainly not a preacher of circumcision. He asks in verse 11, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The fact is, Paul was persecuted, and he was persecuted virtually wherever he went. He was hounded by the Jews. We see that throughout Acts. He suffered greatly at their hands. Uh, just as he said in, in, in chapter 4, just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, verse 29. But Paul also got it from the Gentiles as well. The ones who were escaping persecution in all of this were, in fact, the Judaizers. The Jews weren't nearly as upset with this group, for they were still insisting on the Mosaic Covenant to be kept. And on the other side, they were still the Judaizers. They were still Jewish enough that they could escape some of the persecution that would come from the Gentiles. So later in chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul will say it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, these troublers, Judaizers, who would force you to be circumcised and only what's their motive in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The reality is it is the preaching of circumcision that removed the offense of the cross and helped people to, be, to avoid persecution. Here in chapter 5, verse 11, he says the Judaizers' message of justification by faith and law-keeping removes the offense of the cross. The implication then is that there is an offensiveness to the cross and that it is not to be removed. Removing it is a bad thing, according to this. Rather, it is something that is to be embraced, and it is, in fact, an integral part of the gospel message. And so what is it? What is it that is offensive about it? Well, certainly there is a recoiling at the thought of needing a savior and king who was crucified, who was killed in such a horrific and gruesome manner as though he was a criminal. There's a foolishness to that uh, for many of the wise of the earth. There is a stumbling here that we should find something good, uh, even the greatest good like salvation in such an act of crucifixion. But it is more than just recoiling at the crucifixion itself. The Judaizers weren't saying the crucifixion didn't matter, nor were they denying that it occurred. Rather, their message was undermining and throwing off the true scandal and offense of the cross. The cross of Christ proclaims the true depths of the sinful nature of humanity, that in your natural condition, you deserve nothing less than the wrath of God poured out upon you for your transgressions. And the cross of Christ says that there is nothing you can do to change this reality. You are dead in your trespasses and sins without hope, in your natural condition, at enmity with God. And even your best efforts to fix that leave you condemned under the failure to measure up to God's law. The cross of Christ proclaims that the only way for a sinner to be justified and forgiven by God is for God the Father to send His only Son, the eternal Son of God, to come as one of us, as a man, in order to secure your redemption. If there was some other way that this could be done, God surely would have done it. The Son would not have come to die if there was some other way. The cross of Christ reveals just how serious the justice of God is and how exacting it is. For the perfect Son of God 
bore the sins of many on the cross, and though innocent himself, died for the sins of others. And God's just and holy wrath was thereby appeased, since the wages of sin is death. And so because a death has occurred by the perfect Lamb of God, God can now and does justly forgive sinners because the penalty of those sins has indeed been paid. And the cross of Christ preaches that we need to look away from ourselves entirely and to another if we would be justified. We must look in faith to the Son of God who was lifted up on the cross for sinners. Our sole hope of being counted righteous before God is to look in faith to the one who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. The scandal and the offense of the cross, then, is not just that our leader and Savior died there, but that our entire hope of righteousness is found in the crucified Son of God. That we contribute nothing to this except the sin that put him on the cross. Jesus paid the price. Jesus provides the righteousness we need. And we receive this as a kind, gracious gift of God through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. The offense here is that you and I, as sinners, are utterly helpless to fix our situation. And that the answer is not to simply do more or try a little harder, nor is the answer that God gives you a little boost so that you can complete it. It's not that the crucified son gets you into the game and now you get to finish the work of saving yourself or anything like that or any formulation like it. The offense is that you contribute nothing at all Zero to your righteous standing before God. And you cannot. You are too weak and too sinful. And your very best is like filthy rags. You cannot justify yourself. The legal law pathway to righteousness before God only leaves you cursed. If we speak of Christ crucified to other people as an example of love that we should follow. Nobody's upset about that. He sacrificed himself for others. Well, isn't that nice? Nobody, nobody's upset if we say, so we should love likewise and be sacrificial. People don't, aren't bothered by that. But if we speak of Christ crucified for your sins, and Christ crucified alone being your sole hope of righteousness, apart from any work you've done, this is where many would find offense. The Judaizers look away from Christ, and they put people back on this legal pathway to try to secure righteousness. What Christ has done is not enough. They take away from the glory of God in Christ Jesus, and what Christ has done. Whereas the cross of Christ reveals the generosity and the kindness of our God to freely save wretched sinners on account of what Christ has done, not their own ability to clean themselves up. God justly pardons murderers and thieves and all manner of sinners on account of what Christ has done. He does this for all who turn to Christ in faith, who repent of their sins and look away from their own selves and anything good that they might do or have in themselves and look rather to the crucified Lamb. In short, 
The offense of the cross is God's free grace given to sinners through Christ Jesus. Mankind in his pride despises this. I don't need saving. I'm not that bad. I'm not that weak and helpless. I might need a hand up or a little boost, but I don't need to do everything for me. Even many who profess faith in Christ, similar to the Judaizers, don't understand their true condition prior to Christ and still end up reviling the cross when it is put forth and you become embarrassed of it. What else explains all the silly foolishness you're going to see over the next week and beyond in churches? The Pharisees in Jesus' day despised the fact that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and Gentiles, Jesus said, were entering the kingdom of God ahead of them. They were being allowed in. They haven't even really done anything. They haven't worked nearly as hard as the Judaizers or as the, as the Pharisees have. It's not right. And so Jesus tells this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which we read earlier in which the vineyard owner paid the workers who arrived near the end of the day, late in the game, the same wage as those who worked all day. And the all-day workers were upset with the vineyard owner, but they didn't get paid more. And the vineyard owner asks, Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with that which belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? This is the problem. We, Man doesn't like the thought of wicked people getting into the kingdom of God by God's grace as a gift. I'm better than them. I've done more. I've worked harder. They better work hard too, at least to some extent, to get into this. So we want to hold salvation over people and expect them to measure up to, to a certain standard before we would dare allow them to have any sort of confidence. But God is a generous God. And the cross screams of it. But again, the legalists won't have it. They'll accept maybe some help. We've got to work for this. You must do something. God could not possibly be that kind and generous. They despise it. This is no small despising. Again, to think that we would take all that Christ has done and then say, well, plus, you've got to just be circumcised, then you're secured. It's an insult to what the Son of God has accomplished and done for us. Salvation is in Him. God saves. We believe Him for it. We receive it graciously. This is the good news, and that is the offensiveness of the cross. And Paul says, if I was preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? It fits right in. It's a work we can easily accomplish. It's maybe unpleasant, but it's easily done. If that's what it takes, okay. That wouldn't be that hard. Think about it, really. Any act, any little act, those external acts, you just eat a certain way, and now you can, you're, you'll be saved. Okay. The cross is a stumbling block to Jews, and it is folly to Gentiles, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It is an aroma of life to some who smell the scent of God's grace, who understand something of his kindness and pardon there. And it is an aroma of death to others who would smell the rotten scent of offense. And the reality is it is not ours to lessen the offense of the cross. The offense is not just its confrontation with sinners or their violations of God's law, but it is also in the fact that God freely and graciously justifies such rotten, vile sinners. Many would agree with us 
about some of the most wicked people in history as being truly wicked and awful people. But then say if they had just believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and placed their faith in him on their deathbed, they would be forgiven of that sin. Whoa. Now there's offense. And with this offense that comes from this gospel of God's grace that we look completely away from ourselves, place every bit of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, with this comes a certain reproach for God's people. There is persecution to varying degrees that is guaranteed for Christians. And so we are those who have counted the cost. We see and understand that Christ is worthy because there's nowhere else to turn. So may God be pleased to kill what remains of our desire for the world's approval that we might embrace the offense of the cross. Thirdly and finally, running well involves contending for God's glory. It's not as though God's, God is in need of us to help make him glorious, as if he's not already glorious enough. But we are called to contend for the glory of God and to contend for the gospel of God's grace as his people. We've seen Paul admonishing the Galatians and, and us to test our influences, to be discerning. And as we get to verse 12, we're reminded once again that running the race marked out for us involves contending for the faith. Paul has been embroiled in a polemical battle here. He has pronounced damnation upon the Judaizers right out of the gate in this letter back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And now he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Those are shocking words to read, are they not? One author writes this. He says, For one who was sensitive to the requirements of the law, Paul's statement that they should emasculate themselves would likely have been understood as one of exclusion from the covenant and the presence of God. The law states, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 23.1. Such blunt talk might seem over the top, but sometimes it is pastorally necessary to awaken someone from their sin-induced stupor. Does he have our attention? Paul is certainly engaging in a form of righteous sarcasm, we might call it. But he is not simply making here a crude joke. It certainly makes us our eyes open seems out of place. But it's another way of pronouncing a curse upon them. He desires if they're all about this circumcision, they would simply emasculate themselves and thereby cut themselves off from God and his people entirely. This is very similar to let them be accursed. This might seem at first glance inappropriate. It might seem as though it crosses the line, but what it does certainly reveal to us is just how much is at stake here. There are unrepentant and hardened wolves corrupting and hindering the flock by preaching a damning false gospel. And so Paul is all in here to fight on behalf of the sheep. God's glory in the gospel is being abandoned and corrupted, and Paul is all in to fight for it. If anyone would seize upon verse 12 here, and upon this statement, and use it in order to excuse just crude humor or loose talk, I think that's entirely out of place. There are some 
For example, William Perkins, who was often, he's often known as the father of the Puritans, there are some who have argued that we shouldn't ourselves even employ this kind of language and this kind of cursing upon people because we don't ourselves possess the discernment and spirit of one like Paul. Essentially what Perkins is saying is that we should be too wary of our own flesh and our own corruptions to follow suit, even though we see a divinely inspired author, Paul, writing in this way. And I think that's not bad advice for us to be very skeptical of our own flesh. Uh, it's easy, we see error, to just rant in the flesh about it. That's not necessarily a godly way of trying to defend. So I think that would at the very least give us caution. But this does remind us again that contending for the faith is necessary. And I think that it's not for the faint of heart either. The issue at stake here is the very gospel itself. And Paul does not and will not back down. And he shows us by example the necessity of contending for the faith. The necessity of standing firm and not submitting again to a yoke of slavery. These harsh words are brought about by the attack on God's wisdom and glory that is found in the Judaizers and their message. Someone could read this and think, wow, Paul, settle down. You're causing division. But who is the one causing the division? It's the Judaizers. It's not Paul who stands up and says no. This is not simply, this isn't just crude humor, nor is it Paul raging at the sinful and lost world in general. This is aimed at corruptors of the Christian gospels, pretender gospel, pretenders who come in Christ's name, impersonators of the one true religion. It is these types of people that receive some of the most severe reprimands in all of the Bible. Some of the harshest language and rebukes, like when Jesus engages with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. So again, even when we see the lost world around us, we needn't just immediately fly into really harsh uh, language against them, though we might feel the desire to do so. We know we live in a lost world. And we have the good news of the gospel to give to them. Where and when it is required of us, we contend, as the church has always contended, for the truth of the gospel, and for the glory of God. And it will be required of us. So let us... Prepare ourselves for such. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us stand with those who would likewise stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Again, for if we lose it, we have nothing. We have nothing unique to offer the world. It is, as Paul says in Romans, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It will be offensive to some but it will also be salvation to others. And so we receive the offense as Christ himself did. We receive the offense as Paul himself did. And we rejoice when sinners come home. So let us pray that God would give us a spirit of love, that we would engage the battle for the sake of the truth and for love out of love for others that we would have a, a true yearning and longing for the glory of God, that we would not simply be pugnacious or just wanting some sort of fleshly engagement with others in a fight, but that we would truly be concerned for the truth and that God might be glorified in that truth being preserved. So by God's grace, run well, Hold fast to the cross, not despising its shame and reproach. And I just want to close with reading Hebrews 12, 22. Sorry, beginning in verse 24. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your kindness, for your mercy, and for your grace. We thank you that you have sent your Son into the world in order to redeem sinners. Father, I pray that no one here would recoil at your generosity and at your grace. That as foolish and as offensive as these things might be to the world, that we would cling all the more by faith, in faith, to the Lord Jesus and to the cross. Father, we thank you that all that we have is supplied for us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that your grace would indeed train us to renounce ungodliness, that we would, in light of all that you have done for us in Christ, that this would cause love in our hearts to well up for you. Father, cause compassion to well up for the lost around us, Father. We, we see every day just how lost this world is. Forgive us, Father, where we are hardened to it, where we become angry. Father, where we lose heart. I pray that you would renew us in strength, renew us in the joy of the gospel. Renew us in the great commission that you have given to your church. We thank you for your grace and your kindness. And may we be those who would rejoice when the vilest of sinners turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for your kindness to us. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.